0: You can be seated today. If you've got a Bible, and I hope you do, I want you to turn with me to the book of 1 Corinthians chapter 8. 1 Corinthians chapter 8. And we're going to look in a moment. We're going to take a few minutes to get there, but we're going to look in a moment at 1 Corinthians chapter 8. And we are... Um, Moving towards summer here at First Baptist. And while you're finding that in your Bibles, I want to tell you about a couple of things happening over the next couple of weeks for you to be aware of. First of all, um, next week, you might know what next week is Mother's Day. All right. It's Mother's Day next week. I asked that in the first service and almost every female in the place said Mother's Day. No male voices were heard. And so hopefully, guys we're on our game. All right. So Mother's Day is next week and it's also a week we're going to recognize some graduates around here. And so that's going to be an exciting time around um, First Baptist. Also, two weeks from today um, is our um, we do twice a year. We do these days of extravagant giving. And in the winter, we do it for missions projects. It goes completely outside the church. We give it to organizations, uh, International Mission Board or um, Denver, Colorado. We did it for Journey Point Church. And in the summer or right before summer, we do a Another day of extravagant giving and um, this that for us is going to be in two weeks and that offering goes specifically for the mission trips that we take in the summer. So this summer our church is a part of two mission trips which is uh, we're going to Denver, Colorado and also to Porto Segura, Brazil and so it's specifically for those two mission trips and the two camps that we um, send our kids to. And so our youth go to camp, go to generate. In fact, if you're going to generate, there is a meeting right after service today right here. Right, David? Just right here. OK. And so parents, uh, kids, if you're going to generate students and you need to stay here after service and so generate for our youth, which they leave actually Memorial Day and then send your kid for our kids that they leave in the middle of July. And the reason that we do an offering, we used to do fundraisers, we used to do all kinds of um, different events leading up to those camps and those things, but the reason we do an offering on that day is one offering and no more fundraisers It's just because it's easier for us as a church to get behind and support that. And you as a church have been unbelievable in giving over the last couple of years to that specific offering. So it allows those of us that aren't able to go to Denver or go to Brazil to still participate and be a part of that. We want you to pray for those, but also to give towards those mission trips. It gives you the opportunity, many of you to help support some of our young people, um, we know that camp is a valuable time for young people growing up. So of my greatest spiritual milestones were camp. I would not be who I am today without church camp in the summer. I just wouldn't be. Uh, God used those events to really mold me and to, to wake me up to some things. And we believe that we have some kids that wouldn't be able to go to camp without you helping through that offering. We have some kids that be very difficult on their families to go to camp without you offering. We were able to, to help out and to get chaperones that we need to go because of that and then also to fund the missions that we're doing in those various places and so the day of extravagant giving we just take up an offering that day outside of our regular um, budget offering and that is the 20th of may um, you can already give online for that if you want to you can start giving now if you want to but we'll take all of it in in, in person on that day may 20th all right Today, we're continuing our series of messages called, Can I Ask That?, where you, through slips of paper, wrote out some questions, put them in a specialized box, and then I have called through them, looked through them, found the ones that were most frequently asked, and, and, and I'm attempting to, over the next couple of weeks, we've done this for three weeks now, and this week, in the next two or three weeks, we're going to try to answer some of those questions. Now, sometimes questions have very straightforward answers in the Bible so there's some things that we really don't have to debate. And so like when you look in Scripture and it talks about um, y'all shalt not murder or thou shalt not commit adultery or thou shalt not steal. Like nobody asked me, thankfully, and they can I ask that question, hey, is it okay to murder someone? Like we know that, right? Like they're just straightforward. There's some issues in Scripture that aren't talked about because they weren't around during that time. And so, for instance, sometimes as believers, we have to think about, okay, what kind of entertainment choices are we making? So can I go to R-rated movies? Can I listen to music with explicit lyrics? Well, that's not in Scripture. Like the Bible doesn't say, thou shalt not go to an R-rated movie, primarily because either side of that issue, either go or don't go, R-rated movies were not thought about at that time. Now, if you made a accurate depiction of some biblical stories, it would be rated R, right? Are you here today? Are you awake? Are... Yes, they would be, right? You Made an accurate depiction of David's life with the adultery and the murder. Even before that, he kills Goliath. and what does he do? Cuts off his head, picks it up and shows it to the other side. Like, you can't show that in a G-rated movie. Can you imagine taking, let's go kids, let's go see this, it'll be great. Right? The whole book of Genesis could not be made in PG-13 movie. If it's accurately depicted. Because there's stuff in there that's just crazy. But the answer question is like, okay, so is it okay for me to go see this movie? What if it's, what if it's just got this in it but not that in it? Or what, can I watch a PG-13 movie when I'm 10? Or like, all those questions, they're not in the Bible. Like, how many bad words have to be in the psalm before I can't listen to it anymore? Well, those aren't in the Bible because they weren't thought of. Like, it just wasn't around. Or, for instance, uh, plastic surgery. Like, Is it okay to have non-medical elective surgery of whatever kind? In vitro fertilization for infertile couples, is that okay? Like, those things are not in Scripture because nobody in Scripture could ever imagine something like in vitro fertilization. And so they're not there. And so you have to call through and find principles from God's Word and figure it out and try to find out what is going on with that. The issue that we're going to talk about today, which was one of our most frequently asked about issues, is an issue that is actually talked about in Scripture, But if you read what's in Scripture, and then you look at the statements of faith from several denominations and churches of today, you'll see that it almost sounds like it's different from Scripture to today. From churches that claim that they are Bible-based, Bible-believing churches. And so the question I want to ask is, okay, so what do we do with that? Today's topic is alcohol. What does the Bible say about drinking alcohol? Now, I got that in several ways. Is it okay for a Christian to have a beer? I got um, Can is is it wrong for someone to have wine at night at the home? I got just one card that just on it just simply said alcohol. That's all it said. The truth is, it's not a cut and dry. Scripture says absolutely or do not on every occasion do this. It's also one of those that there is a pretty understood kind of stance that, for instance, Southern Baptist churches, of which we are one, have on the issue of alcohol. There's some cultural differences in churches between Northern and Southern, between East and West, between long-time established and newer churches. There are debates that happen within denominational life about supporting churches that partner with other organizations that don't have the same stance. And it puts you sometimes in a place of, okay, let's go back and find out what does the Bible say and then how do we interpret that for our day and our time? Sometimes when you're a Baptist minister, it can be a hairy situation. So, for instance... um, When I was first pastoring, the first church I pastored was in a small town, Ripley, Tennessee. And the church here, especially our senior adults, think that we have a young staff. When I pastored my first church, I started when I was 25 years old. And I hired a youth minister nine months in that was two years younger than me. And so our staff consisted of a 23-year-old and almost 26-year-old. Seasoned veterans there when I hired the guy that was going to be our youth minister, his name was David. David was from Andalusia, Alabama, which is way down in the south of Alabama. And David came to us. And in the interview process, we were talking about benefits. we were talking about all this stuff. And I said something about um, health insurance. And he was like, can I just take the money that would be for health insurance and use it as salary? And I said, no, we provide health insurance because you need health insurance. And he said, well, here's the thing. I haven't had health insurance in two years because I've not been sick in four years. And spoken by a true 23-year-old, he assumed that that was going to maintain itself for the rest of his life. Right? And I said, well, we're going to provide health insurance for you. So he got there, he got on site, he did not fill out the paperwork that was required for the health insurance. And a few days in, he was from, as I said, Andalusia, Alabama, which is very south Alabama. And in Andalusia, Alabama, apparently they do not have Tennessee allergies. And about three weeks in, it was in the spring, he comes into my office and he's sneezing. He's like, I don't know what's going on with me. And I was like, you have allergies. But his allergies had turned into something else. He had headaches with it. It was, you know, really clogged up. And I said, well, you just need to go to the doctor. He said, "Um, I can't because I don't have any insurance. And I said, A, fill out the paperwork. B, here are a list of two or three things to go to the store to buy yourself that will maybe bring you some relief. Okay, some stuff to clear up your nasal passages, some some top, you know, just some basic stuff. So he said, "Okay, thanks, man." And he went home. The next morning, he came in and he was like, "Man, I, I, I feel weird." I like you feel weird. He's like, "Yeah, everything's kind of fuzzy." I said, "What do you mean it's fuzzy?" He goes, "It's just kind of fuzzy. Like I don't, like I can't really wake up and." Um, and I got kind of a bad headache. It's just like something just pounding on my head. And I, like, when I got up this morning, like, like I just, I couldn't, I couldn't really open my eyes and I couldn't really see that when they were red and I, like all that. And I was like, well, what did you do last night? I said, you go to the store. He goes, well, I, I didn't go to the store because, um, like when I left your office, I went and told our secretary her next door what was going on. And she said, she said, she goes, I'll tell you what, just come by my house. I've got some stuff I'll give you. And I said, well, what did she give me? Because well, she didn't give me any pills or anything. She gave me a drink. And I said, what did she give you to drink? And he said, she called it a hot toddy. <laughs> and I said, and in my mind, I'm thinking, so our Southern Baptist, First Baptist Church Ripley secretary gave a spiked medicinal drink to my youth pastor that's never had an ounce of alcohol in his life. And I said, son, you are hung over is what is happening here. I don't know how much you had, but you're hung over. That's what's going on. And so what do you say in that moment? Like I said, you need to go home and rest and just get better, right? What do you say in that moment? What do you do? How do we feel about it? How should we feel about it? The issue of alcohol is one that is talked about in the Bible. But then when you talk to some people today, there's a much harsher stance than the Bible has. So what do we do with that? What I want to do today is use it as a case study in some ways for Gray issues in general. And some of you are even upset I use the phrase gray issues. There are no gray issues is what you say. But the truth is, Scripture has some things it's very clear on. Don't murder. Don't steal. Don't commit adultery. And then there are other things that we have to take the principles of the Bible and figure out. And where in the Bible, and we're going to talk about this, where in the Bible a command is clear, obey it. But when the decision or the command is unclear... You need to look for the principles that are there to make your decision. So here's what I want to do. I want to take three things that we know about alcohol from the Bible, talk about them for a minute, and then I want to take 1 Corinthians chapter 8 as a case study for what that's going to be. So three things we know about alcohol from the Bible. And the first thing is this, drunkenness is a sin. Drunkenness is a sin. Unequivocally in scripture, it teaches us that if you are drinking to get drunk or you get drunk while drinking, it is a sin. So, for instance, in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 18, Paul says, don't get drunk with wine, which leads to reckless living, but be filled by the spirit. He's talking about grander schemes, grander ideas here. But in the midst of that, when he's talking about things not to do, he makes it clear that drunkenness is not to be an option. In the Old Testament, there are two or three moments when characters that are commissioned by God to do important things are sidetracked or have major issues because of drunkenness in their life. And so Noah, who was God's chosen man when the flood happened to rebuild the human race, comes out of the ark, plants a vineyard, it says, and gets drunk uncovered in his tent and one of his sons sins and is cursed because of the way he handles the drunkenness of his dad in another story a lot is up hiding because he's scared of someone gets there one night his daughters get him drunk to participate in activities that daughters should not participate in with him and it says that drunkenness is what led to that to be able to happen Throughout scripture it is seen as that Inhibition lowering That leads us to make decisions And leads others to make decisions That causes severe harm So we know from scripture that drunkenness is a sin What does that mean? It means that if your goal in drinking is to get a buzz Or to get drunk, that's a sin It means that if your goal is to get wasted Or just to let your problems be washed away, it's a sin. The second thing we see in Scripture is this, that breaking the law is a sin. So in Romans chapter 13, Paul says, let everyone submit to the governing authorities. Now, just a note about the governing authorities that were over Paul at this time. There were governing authorities who were persecuting and killing people for being Christians. And so when we sometimes look at the government that we have and think, man, they're kind of not very nice to Christians sometimes. They are not yet killing us. And so when Paul tells the people to whom he is writing about the government that is persecuting them unto death, and he says to them, don't worry about disobeying their laws. Is that what he says? No, he says, obey the laws. God is the one that's put them over them. And the authorities that exist are instituted by God. So then the one who is this, the authority is opposing God's command. And those who oppose it will bring judgment on themselves. So what does that mean? Well, that means that we can make some statements about that. If you're under 21, drinking is wrong. It's against the law. It's against the law and you break it. It's a sin. If you're just a little buzzed and you get in a car and you drive and it's against the law, it's a sin. Like obeying the laws of the land. Now there are times, according to scripture and according to our conscience, when it's okay to disobey laws. But those are all in the recognition of when the laws require us to do things that are contrary to the lordship of Jesus Christ. Like if the government says you can never say the name of Jesus again, it's okay to break that law. But drinking and driving or drinking underage are not things that are somehow going to prevent us from spreading Jesus' name. And so it's wrong. So the first two things we know from Scripture that are really commands is don't get drunk and don't break the law. Drunkenness is a sin. Breaking the law is a sin. The third thing we know from Scripture, some of you are thinking, Woo, this is a pure Baptist sermon, hellfire and brimstone on alcohol coming. Third thing. In the Bible... Alcohol is mentioned as a gift from God. That's a very dangerous thing to amen in a Baptist church, by the way. But it's true, right? In the Bible, alcohol is often mentioned as a gift from God. Psalm 104, verse 14 through 15. It's talking about the blessing God gives. He calls the grass to grow for the livestock. And provides crops for man to cultivate, producing food from the earth. Last night we had a great meal at our house. We got some um, good steak and we made steak fajitas. And I praise God for the blessing of the livestock and the vegetables and the crops that were done to be able to have the tortilla that I had. And then in the list of that list, he also says not only the livestock and the grass and the crops and the food, but also the wine that makes human hearts glad, making his face shine with oil and bread that sustains human hearts. So in this list of blessings that God has, that he gives to man from the earth, grass, livestock, crops, food, bread, face shining, also in the midst of that is wine. In Proverbs chapter 3, he's listing some things for him to know generally about wisdom. And he says, honor the Lord with your possessions, that when God gives you something, make sure you honor the Lord with that. This is the kind of thing that pastors would use to preach on tithing or giving or saying, honor the Lord with what you have. And with the first produce of your entire harvest, then if you do that, God will bless you is the idea. And how will he bless you? He will bless you because your barns, that's your food storage, will be completely filled and your vats will overflow with new wine. So in the Bible, the sign of blessing is not only a vat that is full of new wine, but a storage area full of food. It's equated as the same. They go, great, great pastor. That's wisdom literature. That's Old Testament wisdom literature. And then you get to the New Testament. Jesus is preparing for his ministry. We know he performs many miracles, but the first miracle he performs is What? Changing water into grape juice. That's what he did, right? Welch's grape juice. That's what was in there. Now, we know that's not what was in there. He changed water into what? Wine. And not just normal wine. He changed it into good wine. Now here's what happened at those kind of parties, and you probably know this, but at those kind of parties, because you probably heard me preach on, somebody preach on if you've been in church. At those kind of parties, at the wedding, what would happen is the whole community would come. Weddings happened in their area very, very, they didn't happen all the time at all. And so when a wedding happened, it was a huge deal. And so the whole area would have come. Everybody would have been glad to see each other. It would been like a, a big family reunion, community gathering. It would have been like all of that. And they would have all been around. And the bride's family, groom's family, they were all responsible for providing, mostly the brides, what was going to be the party. And good wine was expensive. And so what they did is they gave the good wine out first so that when people drank enough of the good wine, they wouldn't recognize the bad wine that came after. Because the good wine was good. So sometimes pastors will try to preach this passage and say, what they refer to as wine is not what you would know as today's wine. Here's the thing. It was fermented alcoholic, a beverage made from juice. Made from the fruit of the vine. We call that wine. And when Jesus converts it, some of you are like, I ain't never heard this in a Baptist church sermon before. What is When Jesus converts it, at the end they say, man, you left the best stuff for last. Alright, well, Jesus. What about anywhere else in the New Testament? Well, then you have Paul. And Paul's talking to Timothy, his young protege in the ministry. And in 1 Timothy chapter 5, 23, he says, don't continue drinking only water. But use a little wine because of your stomach and your frequent illnesses. This is Paul telling Timothy to get a hot toddy is what's going on here. Not not really, all right? I I don't think wine is in a hot toddy. I don't know what's in a hot toddy, but Hilda Jernigan tried to tell me in the first service. So, (laughs) but he's saying, listen, quit drinking water, get a little wine to make your stomach better. So think about what we've said so far, alright? Because we're building something here. The first thing is, scripture makes it clear that drunkenness is a sin. It's wrong. Secondly, that breaking the law is a sin. And so, if you're drinking to get drunk or even to get buzzed, if you're just trying to drink your problems away, that's wrong. If you're under 21 drinking or you're drinking and getting in a vehicle, it's wrong. It's a sin. But then scripture also has this idea that alcohol is mentioned as a gift, a blessing from God. So what do we do with that? Well, scripture gives us that kind of direction. And because of that, there have been three or four different stances people have taken when it comes to alcohol in general. And we'll talk about which of these can actually be biblical stances. The first one is that people are complete abstainers. They just say, I'm not going to drink. They don't like the taste for some of them. They don't like the effects that it has on them. For medical reasons, they're not going to drink. Or for religious reasons, they're saying, listen, because of what I believe, religious conviction, I'm just not going to do it. So they're complete abstainers. There are those that are moderate or social drinkers. These are people that don't drink all the time, but they go to reception, there's wine at the reception, they drink the wine, or, or maybe they have, they have beer in the fridge and at night or on a Saturday afternoon they, they drink one or two. They don't drink very much, but they drink occasionally, or they go to a Mexican restaurant. They go to a Mexican restaurant on Cinco de Mayo and they're having fajitas and they think, man, I'd like a beer with that, and so they drink a beer with that. But these are not people that do it rarely or often or are uh, usually letting it go too far. The third kind of category, when you go from abstainer to moderate social drinkers, is what people call abusers. And this is a, these aren't my terms, these are, these are technical terms. An abuser is not really a lifestyle, so they're not drinking every day, it's not controlling them every day. But when they do drink, they go too far. So they don't drink every day, but when they go out on a Friday night and drink, one, two is not enough. They go for a lot more. And then the fourth one is an alcoholic. This is where it's moved from just once a week or twice a week. Maybe maybe twice a week is even moving into that territory. But really this is when for some people it's become something they need professional medical attention. It's a disease. It's not something that they can control anymore. They're being controlled by alcohol. Now, if you just look at what the Bible teaches about alcohol, I think it's really hard to make a case that three and four can be appropriate uses of alcohol within a Christian's life. Not really hard. It's almost impossible. We have to do what sometimes in school we would call hermeneutical. That's interpreting the Bible gymnastics. You got to go all over the place. And so the question becomes, okay, then what about the first two? And here's the truth. There are people that can move between these four levels. But things in their life happen, attitudes change, understanding changes. And they can move from one level to another, back and forth. Sometimes, I, I went to school with a lot of people, I went to a Baptist school, and so I went to school where alcohol was not allowed on campus, and if you talk to the leaders on campus, it was understood, you, you, you can't drink, you can't drink ever, that's not okay. Like, um, I was in a fraternity, sometimes people was in a fraternity at a at school, and they are like, wow. But like, fraternities at Baptist schools are quite different than fraternities other places, alright? And so like, at our fraternity, never could we have any kind of alcoholic beverages, because we were a union fraternity. But then I have friends that graduate with me from union, leaders, Christian people, that after college began to investigate, began to read, began to look, and they came to the conclusion that it was okay to do that every now and then, to drink every now and then, and so they've moved from one to the other. My grandfather, Merle Larson, who I never met, my my dad obviously knew his dad, but just for a limited amount of time, my mom, who's been married to my dad um, for many, many years, almost 44 years, never met my grandfather. My grandfather was a great guy from Nebraska, a religious family, religious guy, and from all that I can see, before he went to World War II, was a moderate social drinker, didn't do a whole lot of drinking, but went to World War II. In World War II, he was stationed at a place called Hickam Air Force Base. If you know anything about Hickam Air Force Base, it is the Air Force Base that is associated with Pearl Harbor. He was at Pearl Harbor the day it was bombed. Uh, My dad recently was given by some family members scrapbooks of my grandfather from his time at Pearl Harbor. And when you open to one page, it is his regiment, his crew, and he's got X's through all the guys that were killed on that day. He served in three of the bloodiest fights in the Pacific, including Midway, Pearl Harbor, was flown back here for shell shock, is what they call it, post-traumatic stress disorder, I would imagine would be today's. Diagnosis. Ended up in a hospital in Halls, Tennessee, where he met my grandmother, who was a candy striper there. And he was messed up for the rest of his life by those events. And the way that manifested itself is he became an alcoholic. He moved from social drinking to abuser to alcoholic. And my dad would tell stories of growing up and being left in pool halls because they didn't have bars necessarily around. Pool halls where his dad was drinking till all hours of the night. His dad would um, hide Christmas presents while he was drunk and not be able to find them when Christmas came. So you can move from level to level. And the question really to ask ourselves is, okay, in the midst of all of that information, where do I need to be on this? Here's what I want to tell you. I'm going to frustrate some of you because I'm not going to give you the universal, absolute answer. Because the scripture doesn't give us an absolute, universal answer on this. But I'm going to give you the principles that have led to my decision and where I am on this. 1 Corinthians chapter 8. First Corinthians chapter eight, starting in verse one, Paul says now about food, sacrifice to idols. Now we're going to get to food, sacrificed to idols in a minute, but here's what I want you to understand. This is a perfect book to talk about in series like, can I ask that? Because literally what Paul is doing in most of first Corinthians is answering questions the congregation ask him out of Corinth. It's like he gave them a list of things and said, what do you want to know about? And so in chapter 7, we talked about a couple of weeks ago. It's like, what about if my spouse is an unbeliever? Do I need to stay married? Do I need to get a divorce? And he says, now about unbeliever marriage. He gets to chapter 8 and he says, now about food sacrifice to idols. And here's what had happened in their place. There was a group of people within their church who thought they knew everything there is to know. They were called the spirituals, and they thought they had the answers to everything. And Paul says, we know that we all have knowledge. Knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. If anyone thinks he knows anything, he does not yet know it is he ought to know it. I think that should be mandatory instruction for teenagers in life. If anyone thinks he knows anything... I love you guys. But if anyone thinks he knows anything, but he does not yet know it as he ought to know it. But if anyone loves God, he is known by him. So he says, first of all, let's establish something. Just because you think you got an answer doesn't mean you have an answer. Next verse. About eating food, sacrificed to idols. So here's the setup. All right. And we're going to bring this back to the issue of alcohol. But I want you to see the big picture. There were lots of people in Corinth who had become believers. And Corinth was considered a wild city, often compared to somewhere like Las Vegas. And what would happen is they would be invited after becoming believers into the homes of people who were not yet believers. And while they were there eating, they would be around eating, having discussion, talking. The people would offer the meat for the night, which was specialized only for big events. They didn't do meat every meal. They didn't have something to meet every meal they had. So they give that out and people start to eat it. And during the course of the discussion, I don't know if somebody ate it and thought, man, this is great. Where did you get this? It comes up that the meat that is being offered for the evening that night is meat that had been previously set aside to be sacrificed to idols. So in their day, what they did is they had pagan temples all around. Corinth had lots of pagan temples to people like Ares and Aphrodite, all those all those uh, Greek heroes that you hear about. And so they would come to sacrifice, people would bring their best to sacrifice to that particular pagan god. And what they would do in the temple is they would kill the animal, remove part of the meat to be burned for the sacrifice, remove part of the meat to feed the priest in the temple, and then remove part of the meat to sell to the general public to make money for the temple. And so the best meat in town was generally the food, the meat that was supposed to be sacrificed to idols. And so they would get in the room, they would be eating something, and somebody would go, Man, where did this meat come from? Where's this lamb from? It's awesome. And they would say, Oh, we bought it down at the temple of Aphrodite because it was meat that was set aside for her. And there were some Christians saying, Man, do we need to do that? Do we need to eat that? And the group of people that thought they knew everything, those that had the knowledge, the spiritual people, Said, man, it's not really sacrifice to idols because idols aren't a thing. So eat, drink, be merry, it doesn't matter. There are other people like, I just don't know if that's right. So this is Paul's answer. We all know that an idol is nothing in the world and that there is no God but one. These are quotes they were saying. Like, of course we can eat it, because there's no such thing as an idol, and there's only one God. For even if there are these so-called gods, whether in heaven or on earth, as there are many gods and many lords, people that claim to be gods, for us there is one God, the Father. And he says, I agree with that. Listen, there's only one God. And so the idea is, if it's a meat sacrificed to Aphrodite, and Aphrodite does not exist, then the meat was not sacrificed to Aphrodite. It wasn't sacrificed to anyone. So eat it and be fine. Some of you will get that on Tuesday. But it's good, all right? All things, he says, are from him and we exist for him. And there is one Lord, Jesus Christ. All things are through him and we exist through him. So he says, oh, that's fine. Okay? Honestly, if you're eating meat, he says to them, sacrifice to a god or goddess. It's not really sacrifice to them. So it's not going to impact you. In fact, he says, we are not worse off if we don't eat and we're not. Did you skip one there? Yeah, go back. However, not everyone has this knowledge. He says, you're sitting around the table with these people and maybe the unbelievers or maybe the people next to you. Some have used it to idolatry up until now and they eat food, sacrificed to idol. Their conscience is defiled. Food will not bring us close to God. He said, here's the thing. Food's not going to change us. It's not going to bring us closer to God. He goes on to say this. We are not worse off if we don't eat and we are not better off if we do. So the first thing he's saying to them is he's giving them a basic principle in life. That food is food. It gives us sustenance for life, but the quality or the speciality of the food does not really make a difference. And so, for instance, sometimes I joke about the fact that I love good steak. And the truth is I do. We live, fortunately, in a time in life, in history, when we don't have to worry about, like, really, for many of us, where food is coming from. For some people, that's still an issue. But for a lot of us in this room, food we have food available to us. And so when you have food available to us, you worry about making it taste good or look good. You try to be fancy with it, fancier than normal with it, all right? And so we worry about those kind of things. But if I have a steak that is properly seasoned and cooked beyond belief, or a steak that's just kind of ordinary, an hour later, it does not matter. It's the same response by my body. It's just food. We're not better off if we don't eat it. We're not better if we do. Next verse. But be careful that this right of yours in no way becomes a stumbling block to the weak. For if someone sees you, the one who has knowledge, dining in an idol's temple, won't his weak conscience be encouraged to eat food offered to idols and thus lead him down a path. Last verse. So the weak person, the brother or sister for whom Christ died, is ruined by your knowledge. Now when you sin like this against brothers and sisters and wound their weak conscience, you are sinning against Christ. And here's the last verse of the passage. Therefore, If food causes my brother or sister to fall, I will never again eat meat so that I won't cause my brother or sister to fall. So here's the truth. I have made the decision for my life that I will abstain completely from alcohol. I'm based that on several criteria and several observations that come from this particular passage. First of all, I base it on the fact that my grandfather was an alcoholic. And I know that most studies show that they believe there is some hereditary impact on those that are children and grandchildren of those that fall into alcoholism, that there is a tendency you can in your life. And so for me, I cannot risk that being a possibility. The benefits do not outweigh the risk. The second reason is, I am a Baptist pastor. And if you were out and saw, if I was at the local Mexican restaurant having a beer with my fajitas, the news, I did not say I was. Listen, i got to be very careful here. If I was, the news would get around town very quickly. Some of you honestly would be like, "Woo, good job. Most of you... And most of the people that have been long-time members of this church would say that that is not appropriate. And it goes back to this principle, alright? Because here's what I believe. You want to tell me? Here's what I absolutely believe. I believe that because of my freedom in Christ, because he has saved me from my sin, and because food is food, that I could... Drink alcoholic beverages and it not be a sin. But this passage reminds me that I should never let my freedom become a stumbling block. Just because I can doesn't mean I must or I should. This is one of those. When I got the questions about alcohol, I thought, "Man, we just cover that. I just did that." And I looked back to try to find when the last time we talked about it was, and it's been since 2011. That's a long time ago—seven years. And that particular time, I called the pa- I called the, the the sermon that day. Can a Christian have a beer? And that was a terrible title for a sermon, because the reality is, yes, I mean, yes, they can. The real title should have been, should a Christian have a beer or a drink? And I can't give you the definitive answer for your life. I'm pointing up here because I can give a definitive answer for here for the moment. But I can't give it to you up here. I can tell you the reasons I have chosen not to that I never have and I don't ever plan to. And part of that is that the position that I hold with my witness for Christ I cannot allow my personal freedom to become a stumbling block to those that are looking and seeking Christ. And when making cultural decisions, we must remember our responsibility over our freedom. We live in a culture that wants to talk about our rights all the time. I have the right to this. I have the right to that. I have my rights. I need to protect my rights. But biblical Christianity is not about our rights. It's about our responsibilities. And so the two questions that I ask myself regularly when it comes to this or other decisions is, do I really need it? When it comes to alcohol, the need for alcohol today is different than the need for alcohol then. In fact, back then, in Jesus' day, alcoholic beverage, wine, was almost the only safe beverage you could drink. They didn't have filtration systems for their water. So they often had bad water. And so when Paul says to Timothy, drink something besides water, he's also telling him, the water you're drinking may be bad. Now today, we have the safest in most parts of the world. Now there are some parts that still don't. But where I am in Goodlettsville, Tennessee, the water that I drink is highly safe. The drinks that I can get at the store that are non-alcoholic are highly safe. And so for me, the answer to that is no, I don't need it. The second question I have, is this the best decision for my Christian witness and for other people seeing Jesus in me? Now, I know that when you hear me saying that, you think I'm assuming a certain answer in that question. But I'm really not. That's a question you have to think through. And I think most people, when it comes to the issue of alcohol, don't think deeply about it at all. They just think either a man, I really like it or I don't or I should or I shouldn't. And there's no like deep thought. So we come out of this message. There are just a few conclusions that I have for us. These are not going to be on the screen, but here's what I want you to know. First of all, we can't avoid this issue. With your kids, you can't avoid this issue. You have to have this discussion. Earlier than you think you have to have it. This is the same way as the discussion about the birds and the bees. Sexual activity. Drugs. Our kids are hearing about it, thinking about it, making decisions about it, before many of us ever think that it is on their mind. So you can't avoid it. Churches can't avoid it. We've got to have a conversation. But we have to have honest conversations. We can't be disingenuous with, like, well, the Bible says don't do that, so don't do that. Well, it's a complicated issue. Let's have a discussion about it. Secondly, if you're under 21, don't drink. That's the law of the land. Make wise decisions when it comes to that. Third. If you're someone that when you listen to that or you have someone in your life, when you listen to those four categories, you thought, I think they're in the abuser or the alcoholic realm. If that's you or someone you know, if it's you, seek out the help you need. If it's someone you know, pray about, seek counsel on the best way to help them find the help they need. Fourth, be cautious with your judgments of others. Drinking alcohol is not the unpardonable sin. And in a lot of Baptist churches, it's taught that way. It's not the unpardonable sin. In fact, as I've mentioned, there are times when I don't think it is sinful. For me, I think it would always be sinful. But I think that's a discussion and a lifestyle choice you have to make. And then the last one, and this is the overriding question for you. Is your freedom in Christ being exercised damaging your witness for Christ? Is exercising your freedom in Christ damaging your witness for Christ? And if the case on alcohol is yes, then the choice you need to make is not to. It's a complicated issue. It's also one of those issues that I bet—and I don't know this for sure—but just looking at some things that are out there, if I polled our church, the younger you are, the more open you are to this, to it being okay. I mean, I talk some of our senior adults today. When that third point came out about being a blessing in the Bible, I thought they were ready to fire me then. All right. But what I want to do as your pastor is always try to see what the Bible says about it, and then make our decisions as we walk from that. And so if you're here today and you're in that top category, you abstain from it all the way because of moral specific reasons other than just what well, the Bible says. No. And praise be to God for that. If you're here today and you have fought through these topics and you're on these issues. And you're one that says, you know what? I think it's OK in my life, in my position and who I am. That I'm not going to tell you to go against your conscience and I'm not going to judge you. My prayer is this, that we have actual thoughtful decisions about it. And not just, well, that's what I've always thought. Let's pray together.